Well, good to be with you guys this morning. My name's Brandon. I'm the second favorite pastor at River City. <laughs> Becky informed me that I'm tied for second with Matt Chandler and her brother. Um, so that's something, I guess, right? Uh, good to be with you guys again. Uh, super appreciate your prayers last week. Uh, to put it lightly, last week at Pepin HQ was brutal. Uh, it was Thursday night. Our, son, our uh, one-year-old son, Caleb, had been puking since Tuesday. And Hannah and I are heading to bed looking at each other with the look of dread that says, you're feeling, starting to feel sick, aren't you? Yep. So we're back, though. Three editions of the stomach flu, two double ear infections, and five days of insanity, but we're back. So I'm glad to be with you guys this morning and uh, excited. Uh, This morning's really exciting because we get to start a brand new series. And I have been really, really looking forward to this ever since uh, we had uh, prayerfully planned and set kind of the course in motion. But from now until Memorial Day, we're going to be spending time together in the Sermon on the Mount. I even got a fancy slide. Um, And so... uh, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is found uh, in Matthew, the book of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7. And uh, Sermon on the Mount is arguably some of the most famous words of Jesus. Uh, even if you have never read a Bible, even if you have never stepped foot in a church, you have probably heard a lot of the words that are in the Sermon on the Mount. They'll probably sound familiar to you. But... Despite the Sermon on the Mount being some of the most quoted, most well-known verses in all the Bible, some of the most well-known stuff that Jesus ever said, it is also some of the most misunderstood and most misused passages throughout all of the Bible. And so uh, this morning, in an effort to um, avoid such misunderstanding and such misuse, Uh, I want to set us up with some context so that we might be able to get our bearings as we uh, head into the next uh, couple of months as we study uh, this great sermon of Jesus's. And so the, the words of the Sermon on the Mount are part of the larger book of the Gospel of Matthew. And so the theme and the setting of the Gospel of Matthew is really important as we seek to understand the words within the Gospel of Matthew. Um, The Sermon on the Mount, these uh, three chapters of Jesus' preaching, is the longest recorded sermon that we have. It's not necessarily the longest one Jesus ever preached, but it's the longest recorded one that we have of his. And uh, the Sermon on the Mount is the closest thing to a manifesto that we ever hear from Jesus throughout the Gospels. And the theme of the Sermon on the Mount and the theme of the Gospel of Matthew are the same, as they should be, right? The central theme to Matthew and the central theme to the Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom of God. There is no more important theme in the Gospel of Matthew. That theme, the the coming, the announcing of the kingdom of God as its entire focus and point. It's kind of like when you have a baby, right? Many of you have recently had babies. We may not be good at a lot at River City Church, but we're certainly good at having babies, and that's something. Um, but when you have a baby, you announce it, right? You call your family and your friends, you tell everybody, you post uh, rid- ridiculous amounts of pictures on Facebook, you put a really weird sign with an awkward bird on it in your front yard that's blue or pink. Um, you want to announce it. You have really good news. You're not pregnant anymore. I mean, uh, you have a baby, right? All the people who are pregnant thought that was funny. Um, And that good news changes your life. You have just entered a new kingdom. 
Unfortunately, it's one in which a pooping, screaming infant is now in charge, but you have a new kingdom that you're a part of. And it really is good news, and you want to announce it. Just like uh, it's good news to announce, to proclaim when you have a baby, over and over in in the book of Matthew, the phrase that's repeated is that Jesus came preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And so the coming of this kingdom, the ushering in of it, it's proclamation, it's revelation, it's, it's opening wide to the world, is intended to be really, really good news. The last verses of chapter 4, right before the Sermon on the Mount, where we're going to spend our time this morning. So technically, we're not really in the Sermon on the Mount this morning, but trust me, we're going to get there. And it, we're, I want to frame this morning our understanding of it. Why don't you read with me in verses, uh, the end of chapter 4 here, it says this, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among people. And news about him spread all over Syria and large crowds from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and the regions all across the Jordan followed him. And so Jesus is coming to preach the good news of the kingdom. And in Matthews 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount is, it is the proclamation of that good news. Jesus is going to declare to us what the good news about the kingdom really is. He's going to tell us what the kingdom is like and what it looks like to live inside of that kingdom and live as a part of that kingdom. And, and so um, it really leaves us with two questions. One, what's the kingdom, right? And two, uh, why is that kingdom's coming good news? Well, we're going to spend the next uh, three or four months talking about what the kingdom is, so we're going to skip that question this morning. And we're just going to talk about number two. Why is the kingdom's coming? Why is that good news? Jesus is going to spend the next three chapters comparing two different kingdoms. He's going to spend the next chapter, three chapters, comparing two different kingdoms. And I think traditionally, throughout the Sermon on the Mount and through much of the preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, it's kind of taught in, in, in such a way, right? There's, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lays out two paths. There's two gates, there's two roads, there's two trees, there's two foundations, there's two ways that Jesus is laying out throughout his, his great sermon. And traditionally, the way that that's been approached is that the two ways are there's, there's God's kingdom way and there's the worldly way. There's people who follow God and obey him and love him, and there's people who do the opposite. But if we look closer at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't comparing uh, good people and bad people. He's comparing and contrasting a way that appears to be good and a way that actually is good. He's comparing a kingdom that looks godly but is actually deadly and a kingdom in which there really is true life. Jesus is comparing a poison apple to a ripe and good one. See, the two kingdoms that Jesus is comparing throughout the Sermon on the Mount are the kingdoms of religion and the kingdom of the gospel. The two kingdoms that Jesus is comparing throughout his sermon are the kingdoms of religion and the kingdom of the gospel. And when I say religion, I'm not talking about a specific religion. 
Rather, I'm talking about a, a way of thinking and a way of relating to God that is primarily based on our actions, our attitudes, our behaviors being the means by which we have or attain God's love or acceptance or approval. Religious thinking at its root is that by my effort, by my appearance, by my actions, by my attitude, I will gain acceptance or love or approval from God. And religious thinking is one of Satan's greatest lies because on the outside, it looks good. On the outside, it appears to be right. There's moral behavior, there's good things that are being done. But religion is a poison apple that kills all those who would eat it. And so my hope this morning as we help frame our, this coming Sermon on the Mount is we help set our context and set our framework and our bearings straight as we begin to study this great sermon of Jesus. My heart this morning is that we would see the differences between the two kingdoms. And I want to show you why the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, really is good news. And it's good news that actually changes the way that we relate to God and the way that we relate to others. My heart this morning is that we would see the gospel really is good news and it changes how we relate to God and others. So let me pray towards that end and we'll dive into our study this morning. God, thanks so much for you. Thanks for your word. God, we're so grateful that you would uh, choose to reveal yourself to us, to show yourself to us, to make yourself known. And so God, as I uh, teach this morning out of your word, as we seek to uh, compare the two kingdoms that you lay out for us in the Sermon on the Mount. God, help us to see rightly. Help us to understand rightly your kingdom. Give us eyes to see where we, um, where we live inside of each of these kingdoms. And God, help us to, by your power, live in light of your kingdom. Pray these things in your good name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, there are three aspects to every kingdom uh, Tim Keller uh, notes that every kingdom has three things. It has a pattern, a power, and a product. And he uses this outline to talk about something a little bit different, uh, but I'm stealing it this morning to talk about this. <laughs> I've been playing a little too much Pirates with my daughter, Emma. Anyways, um, so the question is, right, every kingdom has a pattern, it has a power, and it has a product. So what's the pattern, Right? A pattern of every kingdom is the set of values that govern life in the kingdom. The pattern is a set of values that govern life in the kingdom. And when you look throughout history, every empire had a different value structure, right? And when uh, an empire would come and conquer another people, it would either, uh, sometimes they would say, you know what, you just pay taxes, you do what you want, we'll be cool. Sometimes they would come and just annihilate people's way of living. And sometimes they would come, annihilate people's way of living, and then move them to other countries. And throughout history, there are different values that govern life in the kingdom. For example, uh, in our house, in the Pepin kingdom, there's also a set of values that govern life in our kingdom. We use Apple products at the Pepin house. And we cheer for the Packers, and we drink Slurpees year-round. These are the values that govern life in the Pepin kingdom, right? So what are the patterns of the kingdoms that Jesus is laying out for us? What are the patterns of the kingdom of religion versus the kingdom of the gospel? And so I have for us this morning a fancy chart 
My graphic designer friend Andy will be moderately proud of my use of fonts. Um, And so what I want us to do is to see the differences in the pattern, right? Again, the pattern is the values that govern life in the kingdom. Religion says, if I obey, then God will love me. But the gospel says, because God loves me, I can obey. Religion depends on what I do, but the gospel depends on what Jesus has done. Religion believes that appearing to be good is the key, and the gospel believes that being honest is the key. See, religion claims that sanctification justifies us, but the gospel claims that justification enables our sanctification. Those are a bunch of big theological words, but sanctification just means our spiritual maturity. It's our growing up in Christ. It's our increasing holy and Christ-like attitudes, actions, character, our behavior. And justified just means to be made right with God. And so religion believes that by our behavior, by our actions, that's how we're made right with God. And the gospel says, God declares us to be right with him. That's what changes radically our actions, attitudes, and behaviors. See, in religion, it's, about, it's not about changing the heart. It's about changing the outward appearance. In the gospel, it's about believing that a changed heart leads to a changed life. Religion, the pattern of the religious kingdom is marked by uncertainty about our standing before God, but the pattern of the gospel kingdom is marked by a deep certainty based on Jesus' work on our behalf. That's huge. That like radically changes things when Jesus' kingdom is, and his work on our behalf is the thing by which we gain our sureness and our standing with him. Religion, the pattern of the religious kingdom sees hardships as punishment for sin, but the pattern of the gospel kingdom sees hardships as a sanctifying affliction. See, when everything is about you, it's hard, if not impossible, to see value or good in suffering. But as Christians, we believe that the gospel frees us to not live for ourselves, but rather live for Christ. 2016 was a really tough year for my extended family. We lost uh, three of my grandparents. And some of them knew Jesus and some of them didn't. All of them uh, died in sickness. But for my grandma who knew Jesus, her sickness led her to worship. She never complained. She never got bitter She trusted that God was at work doing something in her that was making her ready for eternity with him. She trusted that God was at work doing something in her that was for the good of those that were around her that didn't know Jesus yet. Her sickness caused her to long even more to be with Jesus, showing that her treasure really was him, not his blessings, not his stuff. See, when you love Jesus, and you live for his kingdom, then everything that happens in our lives can be used for his good, for our good, and for his glory. That's my prayer for my uncle, who is a Christian and just lost his grandpa, who didn't know Jesus. My deep prayer for him is that he would approach the sickness that he's wrestling with, with an attitude and behaviors that would reveal that his hope is in Jesus. 
My aunt watched my grandpa die without hope. I want her to see that there is a different way. There's a better way. There's actually life in the midst of suffering, that it's not meaningless and pointless, that there's a grand purpose for all that would happen in our lives, that it's for our good, it's for God's glory, and there is great life and joy in it. Apostle Paul, who suffered more than anyone I can think of, said, I consider the trials of this life to be a momentary affliction when compared with the glory that is ahead. That is the attitude of someone who is living in the kingdom of the gospel, not the kingdom of religion. You see, in religion, the pattern is that the goal is to get something from God. In the gospel, the pattern is that God getting to God himself is the goal. Religion sees Jesus as the means to an end. The gospel sees Jesus as the end itself. See, in religion, we want the benefits of God's kingdom, but we still want to be king. We want the joys of God's kingdom, but we don't want the king. If we're honest, we don't want the king's rule. We don't want his authority. We just want his benefits. The problem is Jesus will lay it out in the Sermon on the Mount is that you cannot get the kingdom without the king. You cannot have the kingdom without the king. Because what we need more than the blessings of the kingdom is the rule of the king in our lives. What we need more than the blessings of God's kingdom is his rule and authority in our lives. See, the gospel changes our hearts so that what we long for most is the joy of the king, not the blessings of the kingdom. The gospel is about receiving God himself as the greatest treasure. It's about seeing him as the life and the joy that we so desperately are looking for. He's the thing to be pursued. He's the thing to be treasured. He's the thing to be enjoyed. See, the pattern of the religious kingdom is that it's about me. And the pattern of the gospel kingdom is that it's about Jesus. I didn't write this on here, but I think further fleshed out, it's that the pattern of the religious kingdom is really about me having control. Whereas the pattern of the gospel kingdom is about surrendering control to Jesus. It's often been said that religion is the default mode of the human heart. We all tend towards it. We all like find ourselves wrestling with it because how do we relate to others? How do we relate to everyone else? By our actions, by our attitudes, by our performance. See, we're tended toward religion because religion is about control. We all want to be in control. We suck at it. I mean, we're really terrible at being in control of our, of our lives, but we really want to be in control. See, when you boil it down, the pattern of the religious kingdom is an attempt to manipulate God. It's an attempt to gain his approval or his blessings with our actions, attitudes, behaviors, or performance. See, we want to relate to God like a taxpayer, right? We owe God our taxes, we pay him what we owe, so we have paid our debt, and therefore there's a limit to what God can ask of us. We have this cordial relationship by which we pay our taxes, and God gives us his benefits, and everything is cool. That's how we want to relate to God. Um, The gospel never uses that language ever. The gospel says that the way that the basis on which we relate to God is based on unmerited unearned, undeserved grace. So there's no limit to what God could ask of us. 
that can seem kind of scary sometimes. Remember, uh, there's this really famous quote from the uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? The, the Narnia books, where someone asks, uh, they're talking about Aslan the lion, and they say, is he safe? And uh, the character responds, no! Of course he's not safe. He's a lion. But he is good. You see, God is not safe, but God is good. He loves to give good gifts to his kids. He does not need to be manipulated. God's proven and shown and revealed throughout history through his word and ultimately in the person and work of Jesus, who he is and all that he's done. There's no need to be afraid of him. God will never ask us for something that he hasn't already done on our behalf. And if we really understood the gospel, there is nothing he could ask of us that we wouldn't love to give back to him. That brings us to the power of the kingdom. Every kingdom has a pattern, and every kingdom has a power. See, the, the power of every kingdom is, is it's the how the pattern of the kingdom is enforced. It's how the pattern of the kingdom is brought to bear. It's brought into existence, right? Somebody could, I could like, you know, march over to the city hall and Dubuque and be like, I claim this land for Pepin. I have no power to enforce that. They're going to be like, okay, somebody needs to take this guy to the hospital because he's crazy. I don't have any power to enforce the kingdom. So the question is, what is the power of the two kingdoms at work in the Sermon on the Mount? What's the, the power to bring about the pattern in the kingdom of religion versus the kingdom of the gospel? Well, religion's power is fear and pride. It's motivated by fear and pride, but the gospel is motivated by unmerited grace. See, religion's power to bring about its kingdom is fear and pride, and that is a powerful motivator, is it not? Fear is an incredibly powerful motivator. Unfortunately, it doesn't have any power to actually change us. It doesn't have any power to actually change us. And so forever we play this game of whack-a-mole. There's this constant cycle, right, where we have a sense of duty and obligation, and then we don't meet those expectations. We don't meet the, what we know we're supposed to live up to, and so it either results in uh, guilt and shame or pride and arrogance for thinking that you lived up to it. Those are always short-lived, and they cycle back around again to duty and obligation, which leads to guilt and shame or pride and arrogance, which always falls short and leads back around to the same beginning. See, the gospel is motivated by unmerited grace. It's a powerful motivation that actually changes us. It enables us to fail and then run to God for strength instead of running from him when we fail. Uh, For me, one of the things uh, God's most deeply convicted in my heart over the past few years, especially since having kids, is just like a deep-rooted selfishness in my heart. For a while after we had Emma, I just felt like I just constantly wrestled with like this deep selfishness and even sometimes bitterness. Because there was a new kingdom in my household and I wasn't in charge anymore. <laughs> and I wanted the world to rotate around me and I wanted it to be about me and for me and for my happiness and for my good. And for a long time I just would see myself getting caught in that pattern and I would just beat myself up about that. 
And it was a friend who reminded me about the gospel and reminded me instead that I don't need to beat myself up for finding myself in patterns of sin, but rather I need to ask that Jesus would remind me of the gospel, that he would give me the strength I need to love my family and love my wife and love my kids with a selfless kind of love that only comes from Jesus. It was Jesus who considered himself as, uh, considered me as better than himself, as more worthwhile, more valuable than himself, that he would give up his status and standing as inequality with God, and rather he would come to earth as a servant to die for my behalf. I think most oftentimes, or often I see uh, really religious attitudes happen when it comes to sexual sin in our lives. See, the religious motivation for purity and sexuality is that you're supposed to be pure. You're supposed to stay pure. That's the motivations. Or, or sometimes it's, well, sex will just be better if you just waited till you were married. And then when you fail, the, the motivations is try harder, be better, do better, be more good. Just make it happen. Put up more filters, put up more boundaries, or wallow in guilt and shame because you think you're supposed to feel bad. The gospel's motivations are totally different. Our desire is to honor and worship Jesus as our king, who, as our bridegroom, remained pure for us even though we were unfaithful to him. He empowers us to remain pure for our bride in the waiting before marriage and in the hard times within marriage. It's Jesus that satisfies and fulfills. Sex can never do that for us. God, Jesus loves us no matter how much we fail, but he's never content to letting us keep that. God longs for something better for us, for something he longs that we would have the joy of his kingdom, the life that his kingdom offers, the, the joy and gratitude and thankfulness that his kingdom offers. And so the power of the gospel is unmerited grace. But if we're honest, grace is really hard to receive sometimes, especially in kind of our Midwestern culture, right? We, uh, we really don't, we, we pride ourselves on self-sufficiency. We don't ever want to be in debt to someone or owe a favor to someone. We really like to always have the upper hand, to never feel that sense of owing somebody else. It's good to be indebted to a gracious king in Jesus. It's for our good, it's for our growth, it's for our joy, it's for his glory. A lot of times the power of the two kingdoms gets worked out in preaching, if I'm honest. See, there are, there are two kinds of sermons. And the first is, uh, if I'm honest, some that I've preached in the past. The first sermon kind of goes like this. Here's what the Bible says. Therefore, here's how we need to live. Now go and do it. God will help you. What that sermon produces is just a moral example with an imperative to just try harder to do it. And the natural religion in our hearts just kicks in. And so we're motivated to obey God because of fear. We don't want him to punish us, or we don't want bad things to happen in our lives or it's we don't want to appear weak, or we don't want to disappoint others. There's another kind of sermon. It's the one I hope you hear all the time here at River City Church. It goes like this. Here's what the Bible says. 
Therefore, here's how we need to live. There's no possible way we could do it. But there's one who did it for us. His name is Jesus. It's through faith in him that we have power to obey. You see, one produces motivations that are marked by guilt and shame and duty and obligation and worry and fear, and they are powerless to actually change us. And the other is marked by motivations of repentance, humility, gratitude, thankfulness, dependence on God, response to all he's done, has incredible power to actually change our lives. As we study the Sermon on the Mount, if you're actually listening, you should be thinking, is that even possible? Is it, is it even possible to live the way that Jesus is asking, the way that he's describing life in the kingdom? Is it, is it really possible to live like that? See, Jesus is the only one who ever actually lived the Sermon on the Mount. There's no possible way that we, would, that we could live exactly what Jesus says he did on our behalf for us. I can't, man, I can't wait to show you every week how Jesus fulfills his own sermon. I can't wait to show you every week how Jesus exemplifies and shows what his kingdom is like in and through his person and his work. I can't wait to invite us every week to rest in his work on our behalf. That it would give us incredible motivation to love and serve and live for him. You see, instead of receiving the reward that Jesus was due, we got all that he deserved. See, God calls out so that we would be perfect, and Jesus says, I have been perfect for you. See, it's through faith in him that we have the power to live in light of his kingdom, to live in the pattern of Jesus' kingdom, enabled by the power of Jesus' kingdom, which leads to the product of Jesus' kingdom. See, the product of a kingdom are the results of the pattern being brought to bear. The product of the kingdom is the results of the pattern and the power coming together. It's the result of those things. And so the, what is the product of religion? The product of religion is either pride or despair. People look down their noses at everyone else, silently judging the value and worth of others based on their own performance. Their obedience, their actions come from a desire to have leverage over others or leverage over God, which leads to superiority and pride and arrogance and an inability to take criticism and minimal actual life change and heart change. Or it will lead to despair when you unendingly cannot meet the standards you set. See, religion and the gospel agree on one thing. We don't measure up to God's standards. The solution is wildly different. See, religion says, get to work. Get to work fixing yourself and cleaning yourself up. Get to work looking good enough and being good enough and working hard enough. And the gospel says, the work is finished. Hebrews chapter 1 it says, after making purification for our sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down because the work was done. Because it was finished. Religion says that what Jesus did was not enough. I need to add to it. The gospel says, what could you possibly add to all that Jesus has done for you? 
The gospel ends in humble joy. And when we receive grace, we're able to give away grace freely. When we compare ourselves to Jesus, we see how much everyone needs him. And we're free to love and serve others, knowing that everyone needs the gospel just as badly as we need the gospel. And so it leads to a great and abiding joy, no matter what the circumstances. One pastor noted this. This is so helpful. He said, the good news of the kingdom is that even when we don't experience the benefits of the kingdom we still get to experience the rule of the king. The good news about the kingdom is that even when we don't experience the benefits of the kingdom, we get to experience the rule of the king. It leads to joy and peace and gratitude and humility and thankfulness. As I close this morning, I just want to point out You can be a citizen of God's kingdom, but still live under the pattern of religion. You can be a citizen of God's kingdom, but still live under the pattern of the religious kingdom. Jesus is going to spend the Sermon on the Mount telling people that. He's going to spend the Sermon on the Mount highlighting that truth. That it's not just people who don't believe the gospel that live in the pattern of the religious kingdom. It's people sometimes that do. My prayer this week, my prayer as I've prepped, as, as I've prayed over our time together, as I've longed for what God would do in our series, is that God would graciously show us the poison apple that's in front of us every day. We are all so desperately and deeply tempted towards religious thinking that by our actions, by our approval, by our merit, by our own earning, we affect our status and standing with God. And it destroys our ability to relate to him. It destroys our ability to relate to others. My heart is that we would not just be citizens of God's kingdom, but that we would live as citizens of his kingdom. That we would live in the pattern of God's kingdom, by the power of God's kingdom, and it would result in the product of God's kingdom. Came across this incredible hymn, by John Newton. He was the guy that wrote Amazing Grace. I think it does a great job of summing up the difference between religion and the gospel. It goes like this. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. To hear the law of Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that the kingdom that you bring is good news. God, as we study it these coming months, help us deeply understand at a root and heart level how good news your kingdom's coming is. God, I pray that you would graciously show us where we tend towards religiosity, that you would uh, point out by your spirit, the, that you would shine light on the lies that we believe that often point us towards religion. God, I pray that you'd give our spouses and our friends and our small groups eyes to see what we cannot about our own hearts.
and that you'd give us the ability to speak the good news about the gospel in your kingdom to one another. God, remind us about the gospel when we gather and when we scatter. Remind us in the morning and in the evening. Remind us when we're with one another or when we're with our kids. God, the gospel is the best news of all in the history of the world. God, thanks that you would love us and die for us. Help us approach these coming months of your Sermon on the Mount with hearts that seek to cherish the gospel and respond with lives of worship to you. Keep us from religion by your grace, by your power. Thanks that you love us first. We love you back, God. Amen.